Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, everyone. You're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Nam is away this week, and so we thought we'd do something a little different. We're going to be talking about an episode of a little series called The Nature of Things. And this episode we're going to be discussing is on something we all share, but few of us probably understand. Carbon. The levels of carbon pollution have increased dramatically. It's not carbon's fault. Know that carbon dioxide is building up. It's going to lead to coastal flooding, droughts, storms, and we're approaching a tipping point. Carbon is profoundly important in the universe. She is what makes us possible. A couple of months ago, I was invited to the premiere of Carbon, the unauthorized biography. It was a feature-length documentary from the nature of things about one of the most important elements in the universe and the role it has played in just about everything. Now, I'm not a scientist, and so for me to try and explain how carbon works for 20 minutes would probably offend a lot of people who study science for a living. So, we have an interview with Phil DeLuna. He's in the film, and he has an impressive resume. He's a director on the National Research Council of Canada, where he leads a research program on clean energy technology. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering at the University of Toronto, and he ran for the Green Party of Canada in the last federal election. Phil and I spoke about what makes carbon so essential, the damaging consequences of CO2 emissions, and the role carbon capture technology can play in addressing climate change. Stay with us. Phil DeLuna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to just start with a very basic question here because I don't know how many people are science literate. So, um, you could just tell us what carbon is. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So carbon is the fourth most abundant element in our universe, but carbon comes in many different forms. And that's what's a really unique thing about carbon as an element. It can be as a gas in, for example, carbon dioxide, which we all hear about. It's its most infamous form, but it is also the main basis for life. Uh, most of, of life and sugar and our bodies are made up of carbon, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, carbon, hydrogen bonds. So carbon um, is everywhere and everything, really. So it can be found in pretty much like, like if I open up a soda can, that little sound I hear, that's, a, that's carbon basically, right? Yeah, well, if you open up a soda can, that fizz inside that soda can is carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. um, if that soda can uh, has ink on it, uh, that ink is probably unorganic-based ink, and that ink is probably carbon-based. We're talking to each other um, via a computer, and the plastic in this computer is a polymer that has carbon in it. So it, it really is everywhere. So, I mean, you know, one thing I learned about the, in this film is that it's actually carbon's also made of, it's from stardust. Like we're all literally stardust. Can you explain how, how that is exactly? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, you can trace all matter in the universe to its basic origin as being stardust. Basically what happened was there was a big bang that, and when the big bang happened, uh, there was a huge mass of energy in a really small, tiny um, uh, space. And then as an energy expanded and cooled, it created different elements. Uh, the first element to be created was hydrogen. And then there was helium. And then these elements uh, started uh, smashing into each other and then creating new elements. And carbon 
was one of those elements. Well, so take us from how we get carbon being the building blocks of life to it being a danger to everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, carbon, as I said, photosynthesis, what fossil fuels are, is essentially liquefied sunlight. But what that means is essentially carbon is used as the energy carrier that allows us to transform sunlight in those photons, those little packets of sunlight that hit plant matter into things that, that life can use, primarily sugar. The main thing that, that life uh, is based off of as our energy source is sugar. Uh, and then that, that spurs the entire food chain and then evolution happens and then a few thousand years and here we are as humans. The issue with, with carbon uh, and the issue that we're facing and why it's a, a quote unquote bad thing uh, is what happens when we use it for its energy as, and combust it. So basically, if you think about that sunlight that hit the earth thousands of years ago and made fossil fuels, that fossil fuel is essentially liquefied and concentrated sunlight. All that energy is in that fossil fuel. So when we burn coal or when we uh, burn natural gas or when we burn oil, we're essentially allowing that energy of the sun that has been accumulating for thousands of years to be released in the form of heat and light. And that's what fuels our industrial, um, our, our quality of life, our industrial revolution. It's what gives us the electricity that we need to run um, our, our economies. It's what gives us the uh, heat that we need to transform agricultural products into food. And it's essentially everything that we, we owe to our industrialization. But when we combust a fuel, we release carbon dioxide, another form of carbon, into the atmosphere. And when this carbon dioxide enters the atmosphere, it creates a blanket that traps heat inside. Uh, and, and that's what leads to, uh, to um, global warming and increasing temperature change and essentially all of these uh, extreme weather events that we're seeing more and more year on year. So all that carbon now that's in the atmosphere, that's what's causing our oceans to, I guess, levels to rise, our polar caps to melt, like all the things that we associate with climate change, that's a result from all the carbon being in the atmosphere, basically. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a result from all the carbon. And, and to give you a sense of all of the different areas, if we were to take our carbon dioxide emissions and split them up by sector, uh, about 25% or almost a third of it is from electricity generation. Then you have transportation. So the fuel that we use to move trains and planes and, and freights and, and all of these things for people and things. Then you have uh, land use change, the agriculture, which is a land use change is essentially forest fires and clearing space for, for crops and agriculture. The new agriculture itself, which is carbon that comes from livestock, just from its own um, living. Um, then you have um, industrial uh, emissions from things like making like oil and gas extraction for mining for all of the um, metals and minerals that we need to, to for our, our high technology. So uh, it, essentially everything in our society, everything that we use has some sort of carbon footprint associated with it, some amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere. So even this like call, even like, you know, me using this computer, all the things that I guess I do on a daily basis, that's all contributing in a way to climate change, right? Exactly. Exactly. The only way we can kind of reverse it or move past it is if we if we use energy sources 
or we use sources of carbon that are renewable. So on the electricity side of things, if we move completely to a 100% renewable electricity grid, renewable meaning it does not emit carbon dioxide. We're not burning a fossil fuel in order to generate electricity. So that's solar, that's wind, that's hydroelectricity. Uh, that's uh, Some people even consider nuclear because we don't um, emit CO2 when we have nuclear energy. Um, Canada actually has about an 82% uh, renewable electricity grid or emissions-free electricity grid, because we have a lot of hydroelectricity. Uh, and, but that's just the sort of electricity side of things. Making the products, making the microphone that we're speaking to each other on right now uses uh, fossil fuels, essentially, because the plastic comes from carbon that was once, uh, that, that is buried underground. So all of these different things contribute to carbon dioxide emissions in some way or another. So I want to talk to you about uh, carbon capture technology because I thought this was really fascinating and you, I guess, are working in this field a little bit. So could you just tell us a bit about what this actually does? Yeah. So if we think about how nature deals with carbon in terms of the natural carbon cycle, it's plant matter, it's trees, it sucks CO2 in through photosynthesis and it makes, makes plant matter for itself. So carbon in our atmosphere and in our land and in our oceans have a natural cycle that we as humans um, live with. The, the problem is that we emitted through our burning of fossil fuels and our use of, of, of all these different industrial processes, more carbon into the atmosphere than nature can deal with. So the idea of carbon capture is can we then engineer machines to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then stick it back underground? Which kind of makes sense, right? We got into this mess by taking carbon out of from underground and then emitting it into the air. So can we take carbon out of the air and put it back underground? Or can we capture carbon before it even hits the atmosphere in the first place at its point of emission? For example, uh, uh, a, a car factory or uh, a, an, an oil and electricity plant, you know, those big smokestacks. Can you imagine sticking, you know, a, a carbon capture unit at the end of that smokestack a kind of filter that filters the CO2 out before it even hits the atmosphere. So these are the ways that people are thinking about take, essentially drawing down the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so that we can try to reverse global warming. And is this actually happening? Are companies doing this? Yeah, it's happening today. If you were to ask me that question five, 10 years ago, people would say, oh, it's a fantasy. It's science fiction. It's never going to be cost effective. But there are companies, in fact, Canada is one of the leading countries in the world um, there's a company called Carbon Engineering in Vancouver that's doing direct air capture. They have these massive fans that are essentially sucking CO2 out of the air. You have um, big carbon capture facilities uh, in Alberta, the Shell Quest carbon capture plant, for example, um, or the Weyburn um, a capture facility as well. And there are tons of startups that are coming uh, up that are, are doing this too. Uh, startups that like the air company, which takes carbon dioxide and turns it into alcohol and vodka or perfume uh, or a carbon, uh, carbon cure, which is a Nova Scotia based company that takes carbon dioxide and embeds it into concrete where it solidifies and mineralizes. So not only are you taking CO2 uh, out of the atmosphere and permanently sequestering it into buildings, but you're also uh, putting it somewhere and, and allowing to address the emissions of a, an entire sector, which is the, the building sector. I got to try some of that vodka. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is this like, I mean, okay, so there are these companies that are doing this. Are they capturing enough carbon, though, to like make a real difference? Right now, no, they're not. The, the fact is there's, we still need to scale up and scale out this technology. 
uh, like any new technology, solar, for example, when it first came out, there were only very few uh, applications or areas where solar cells were being used, primarily in space for telescopes and space stations and satellites uh, and a few military applications. But then as time went on and there were, the, there were more advances in the technology and there was more economy of scale, more people wanted it and the factories were being built, the cost of solar has plummeted. It is now cheaper today to get solar electricity than it is to get coal, which was unfathomable just 10, 15 years ago. Um, so the same thing needs to happen with carbon capture technologies. Today, you can do it. It's expensive, but you can do it. And there are these sort of niche application areas like concrete, like making vodka from CO2 or perfume, where uh, the, the, the sale of the product that you make from CO2 can help to offset the cost to capture it. But as time goes on, we're going to need to capture and store far more uh, CO2 than we do today. So this isn't quite the silver bullet to this climate change crisis yet, perhaps. No, and in fact, I, I wanna be clear, there is no silver bullet to the climate change crisis. We have to remember that this is just one technology, one tool in our toolkit. And for every jurisdiction or community or area, a different technology may make more sense. I'll give you hydrogen, for example. You can make hydrogen from electrolysis, which is essentially using water to split, uh, or electricity to split water into hydrogen. It makes a lot of sense to do that in a place where you have a lot of clean electricity, for example, Quebec. But in a place like Alberta, you may want to use carbon capture with um, natural gas, where you take natural gas and you split it into hydrogen and CO2 and capture the CO2. So it, it really depends on the location that you're in, the electricity, uh, uh, energy, electricity, grid intensity. It's actually quite complicated. But what's more, it's less important that we have a silver bullet but rather that we have a variety of different technologies uh, that we can use in different scenarios. Well, we talked about some of these technologies. We talked about uh, renewables. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything else that we need to do is in terms of uh, uh, addressing climate change. I'm wondering if we need to change our behavior, for example. I mean, I think about flying. I haven't traveled in over two years. Yeah. I want to go somewhere. But I know that also you know, adds to... Uh, that, that puts CO2 in the air because obviously you're, you're going to be relying on uh, a plane, which requires jet engine fuel and all that. So I'm just wondering if there are things that we need to do uh, to address or fix our behavior. Yeah, this is a good question. And it's a little tough for me to answer because there's kind of two ways when you think about how do we solve uh, climate change and what is our own personal responsibility towards doing so. There's a danger in in essentially shifting all of the responsibility to the uh, consumer and addressing just behavior. Because even if you change your behavior, if you become vegan tomorrow, you never fly and you bike. Yes, you're, you're, you're just, yeah, or you walk everywhere. Yes, you're reducing your own carbon footprint, but the amount of emissions that corporations emit, that governments emit, that large systems that we as humanity emits is so much larger. So on the behavior side of things, I mean, we can try to think of, have that, we should think of it from a collective perspective rather than an individual perspective. How do we collectively as a society and as a country and as a world shift our behaviors to be more sustainable rather than just thinking about how we as a person can do it? Yes, it's important for us to recycle. Yes, it's important for us to do our part. But from a pure calculated numbers perspective, it's actually more important that 
not only do you do it, but you convince every single person you know to do it, that you then lobby for your organization and the, the workplace that you work in to do it, and that you also vote for politicians who will enact policies that allow this to happen more faster. Uh, and and pay with your wallet that you actually you know purchase goods and and services from companies that are serious about sustainability so that you give a market signal that uh, this transition is important and that the consumer wants it. So um, yes, our behaviors need to change, but on a collective scale, not just an individual one. I want to ask you about politicians because I know you ran in the last federal election for the Green Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering just if you think that they ha- that politicians. And, you know, we can talk about Canada, but I mean, also the United States, China, like lots of countries around the world that, you know, contribute to CO2. Do politicians have the will to make the transition off of fossil fuels to renewables and clean tech? That's a really good question. I mean, I I think it's a broad generalization to say all politicians do or don't have the will. I think that there are some politicians that do and some politicians that don't. I also think that we're in an increasingly challenged world where people have and politicians and leaders and and in general, people who have to make decisions are pressured by so many tremendous different factors. You know, we're coming out of a global pandemic. We're faced with a slow burn and change of global warming. At the same time, we're on the precipice of a potential global war. So I can only imagine, you have to think about that in context holistically. That being said, politicians have the will to do whatever they can to get reelected. So as we're starting to see the public demand for more climate policies, as we're starting to see, for example, youth movements uh, started uh, largely in part by Greta Thunberg in 2019 with the Fridays for Future movement across the world. Uh, And as we're starting to see uh, actually change of perspective, not only from um, like the activists, but the mainstream corporations who are saying, actually, there's an opportunity in being part of the leading uh, change in the sustainable transition. Uh, Actually, if we don't change now, if we don't have sustainable and inclusive growth, we're not going to have much profit or uh, ability to operate in the future. So I think we're approaching a moment where it's a confluence of factors that not only is sustainability an important thing for the environmentalists and the youth, et cetera, but it's important. It's becoming more important for the mainstream, for the corporate finance world and for industry. And I think that is a huge shift that is, I think we're going to start to see accelerating the movement for our politicians to, to be more bold, hopefully. Well, I guess 2050 is the year that, you know, everyone is trying to get to net zero emissions. Um, I guess if you if you could I guess I don't know imagine yourself in 2050 or young guy I'm, I'm sure he'll be there <laughs> around I think I'll probably be pushing 70 so I hope I'll be around um, what do you kind of hope to see at that time you know it's an important question because a lot of companies a lot of countries are making this net zero by 2050 target and goal but not enough of them are making well what are we going to do for next year or for 2025 or 2030. And for someone in my generation, I'm I'm 30 years old, um, 2050 isn't just a number, it's my future. And I think that's a very visceral and uh, it's a a very impactful thing to think about when you're this age. When you see the the train wreck coming and you you feel almost powerless to stop it. Um, That being said, I am an optimist. And so by 2050... It's similar to how the world, uh, I, I want to really make this comparison with the pandemic because I think it's an important one. 
Um, the pandemic and, and COVID and, and climate change and, and uh, have a lot in common, actually. They both have lagging indicators, whereas the pandemic had uh, the lagging indicator of deaths, uh, a big lagging indicator of infection. Um, we have global warming being a lagging indicator of emissions, both of which are problems that know no borders, both of which will need international cooperation and scientific technological breakthroughs to address. Uh, and and both the only difference really between both of them is that one was an immediate short-term impact that shocked the world, and the other is a long-term burn that the world is struggling to comprehend. So, but for me, if we think about how the world was able to develop a vaccine in less than a year for an entirely new virus that we had never seen before, um, completely unprecedented. If we reckon back to the beginning of the pandemic and the way that people looked out for each other, if you remember the pots and the pans for the frontline workers um, uh, every night, if you remember um, community associations delivering food to those who were sick and frontline workers, uh, when, when humanity is faced with a crisis that's uh, immediate, uh, uh, you cannot discount the ingenuity and and the the, the bravery and and just the the effort and skill and talent that that we have to solve that problem. My only worry and fear is that with something like climate change, it's not ever going to be an immediate threat until it is, and then by then it's too late. So I hope that we have that same collective response to climate change before we experience the massive loss of life that we already are experiencing, but in a concentrated and acute way. I just want to end by asking you if, if there's anything you're working on, anything that you'd like to plug. Yeah, I mean, there's I am, I'm working on lots of things all the time, <laughs> but I just, <laughs> I just released a new book. It's called uh, Accelerated Materials Discovery. And it's all about how we can use artificial intelligence and robotics to build the self-driving lab of the future. Essentially, the idea is, can we speed up the way that scientists do discovery by uh, accelerating that process using robotics and AI? Um, and then at the same time, I'm also working on a few uh, other side projects, one of which actually, um, I, I just worked with a, a friend of mine who um, is a social entrepreneur, and we just launched a platform, a donation matching platform uh, for Ukraine called MatchUp. And the, the idea is like this, uh, only about 7% of people who work in corporations with donation ma matching schemes are aware and use these donation matching schemes. So the way that this platform works is we pool donations together, people donate to the platform, and we pool those donations together. We then give those donations to an employee at a corporation that has a corporate donation matching scheme that then we then donate that money to a local charity in Ukraine for the humanitarian effort. And that corporation will double, triple, or even quadruple through their corporate matching donation scheme. So the idea is that we're trying to kind of leverage the private sector to help uh, unlock some of this capital that has already been announced, but is it, most of the time is uh, being left unutilized. That's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining me today on Undocs. Thank you. And that's the podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Phil DeLuna. You can catch Carbon, the unauthorized biography on CBC Gem. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>